Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And today, we have a fantastic conversation featuring Gloria Steinem, the celebrated feminist, journalist, and social activist who's been fighting for women's rights for over half a century. The interview originally aired on Be Well Together, our sister podcast that's all about well-being in life and work, where luminary speakers and well-being experts share tips on mental, physical, and social well-being. And you can find Be Well Together wherever you get your podcast, and you can see it on Salesforce Plus, our streaming platform that gives you free access to award-winning original series and live experiences. It's pretty cool. Go check it out. It's salesforce.com slash plus P-L-U-S. Okay, now here with me to talk about her interview with Gloria Steinem is Lauren Parker. She's the regional vice president of Service Cloud here at Salesforce and executive vice president of the Salesforce Women's Network. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, first, tell me a little bit more about the Salesforce Women's Network, what it's all about, what the mission is. What do you guys do? We're focused on creating representation, creating balance uh, on gender issues is our specific area of focus. In our V2 Mom, uh, our vision statement is achieving equity and leadership uh, over the long term at this company. And that's something that we're always striving towards. The idea behind that is that if you can't see it, you can't be it. So our aim is to increase representation and by having more women in positions of leadership at this company that allows every single woman to choose what's right for her not just what's available based on historical gender norms and uh, and lack of equity. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm curious, tell me about the work that the Salesforce Women's Network does and how that influences decision-making at the company. Absolutely. Um, the work that we do is largely distributed. And a lot of the feedback that we get in crafting that vision that led us to women in leadership being our top priority came from the individual uh, office locations, the individual hubs saying, I can't see a path for myself here because of all the issues that I face on a day-to-day in the workplace. And what we've been able to do is unify and collect that voice across our 17,000 members and lift that up to our executive leadership team. We're very lucky to have incredibly enthusiastic and supportive executive sponsors at the top level of of our leadership team at Salesforce who not only invest in uh, the women in the network and on the global board and who volunteer their time uh, with the organization, but also um, uh, they act as advocates and they act as representatives for us when going into meetings with the board of directors or around strategic planning and hiring or around building recruiting strategies. And they're able to help us uh, further the agenda in everything from recruiting to marketing communications to employee retention and well-being. Um, all the way down to job descriptions have been things that we've been able to impact over the years just based on member feedback up to the leadership team. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And it's great to hear how that two-way communication is there and the power of sponsors in the room with that representation. Okay, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your interview with Gloria, which is fantastic and we're going to hear shortly. Tell me a little bit about the takeaway. I I thought it was so interesting that she mentioned a few things in her early life that set her on her path. What stood out to you about that part of the conversation? There were a couple big things that that have really stuck in my chest ever since then. Um, I think one of them is definitely the way that travel has opened up her perspective on the world, that meeting other people and ingraining herself in other cultures that were unfamiliar to her led to her developing 
more empathy and, and refining her activism in a way that was more inclusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about where the women's movement is going right now. I, I should mention that this was recorded before the recent League Supreme Court draft opinion, which uh, has really shifted the conversation in the country on so many topics. I, I'm curious where you think things are headed right now. I think that the uh, the the line of uh, equality, of justice, of you know whatever uh, noun we want to choose, uh, is not a straight line, but it is uh, always improving. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more important than ever, uh, especially during months like this, when there's just so much uh, that it can feel it can feel like too much. It can feel overwhelming, and I think the future of the women's movement depends on two things. Um, One, it depends on us not burning out and not giving up, Mm -hmm. which means that uh, you'll hear Gloria talk about in the interview, uh, God, make time to laugh, make time to play, make time to be yourself. Um, It can feel so overwhelming at times to think that you constantly have to be giving and giving and giving. And I think part of the beauty of the women's movement is that we've learned it's okay for us to take sometimes too. Um, mm-hmm. so not forgetting to, to take that time for yourself and to laugh. I think the other, the other thing that's really important about the future of the movement to me is that there is no right way to do it. And I think Gloria said it really well. The future of the movement is, is us. It's not what it has been. And it's not any one defined thing. Feminism is, feminism is, is everything. Feminism is anything. And as long as we are following our passion and we're following what really matters to us as individuals, you'll find your community. Mm -hmm. And what sort of resources do we have for improving equality? Equality Equality.com is where you can go to sort of start the learning journey of all the things that Salesforce does around uh, building equality uh, at our organization and out in our community. Um, The Women's Network has a ton of volunteer opportunities that we get engaged with in our local communities. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for joining today. It was great chatting. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. So now let's jump into Lauren's interview with Gloria Steinem. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Be Well Together. My name is Lauren Parker. I am a regional vice president in Service Cloud. I also serve as the executive vice president of the Salesforce Women's Network, which is our largest employee resource group here at Salesforce, focused on driving gender equality through community, philanthropy, and employee engagement. It is my immense pleasure to introduce award-winning writer, best-selling author, and all-around fearless force, Gloria Steinem. She is widely recognized as the inspiring leader of the feminist movement during the late 60s and 70s, advocating for gender equality to be added to the U.S. Constitution and paving the way for the Equal Rights Amendment. Gloria is a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She also has produced films and award-winning documentaries, and she is the subject of the biopic, The Glorias, which we highly recommend if you haven't seen it yet. Today, we'll be chatting about equality and social justice with Gloria, who will share her experience breaking long-standing societal barriers. Hello, Gloria, and welcome to Be Well Together. Hello, and I so wish that we were all physically together, but this is the next best thing. And thank you for making this happen. I think in the year of COVID, we're kind of eager for human contact, right? And I so look forward uh, to not only talking with you, but learning from you. And the same from me. And thank you so much for being here. 
All right, let's get right into it. Um, the first question that we have for you is that you've played such a pivotal role in the fight for women's rights and in creating cultural change. Would you tell us a little bit about your background and specifically what influenced you growing up and led to your passion as an activist? When you ask me that question and I think about my childhood, uh, I think uh, about reading Little Women. Did anybody else here read? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, because Louisa May Alcott showed us a world in which women mattered. It was really entirely made up of women because it was during the Civil War. And that makes a huge difference. You know, otherwise I would have been reading about, uh, you know, the Hardy Boys. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think we need to remember that and keep producing inspirational, realistic uh, stories for, for girls. Then I guess the second stroke of luck was that I didn't go to school that much until I was uh, in high school because my family was traveling a lot. Uh, and that meant I could live in books and not in what then would have been um, a classroom kind of based on expectations, based on gender and probably race too. So you know, I count things uh, as luck <laughs> that were accidents. But most of all, I count the women's movement because we learn from each other. We, um, a movement is just composed of people moving. Uh, we learn from difference, not sameness. So it was always clear that it was very important that, and, and a, a, a reward that we were diverse. And even though I may differ from people who are listening because I've never actually had a job. <laughs> I, I've always been a freelancer, right? <laughs> Nonetheless, I think we were all on the same path. I, I, I love what you said about a world in which women matter. That's, that's such a phenomenal thing to hear expressed that you can only be it if you can see it. So building that world of a world in which women matter. It sounds like that was really foundational to you. That's awesome. No, yes, absolutely. And and uh, there weren't a lot of, there are more role models now, of course, more examples now. Um, but I'm grateful that I had them. And, um, you know, it just, it, it mattered enormously to me, enormously to me that I could see women doing diverse things. So I knew it wasn't impossible. That's incredible. Um, now, as you continued to grow after high school and, event, and eventually moving out of school, as a young adult, you traveled to India. Uh, you learned about the, uh, the racial caste system, about nonviolent uh, conflict resolution, about organized resistance techniques. How did your learnings on those subjects impact your approach to organizing and to leading a movement like the mm -hmm. women's movement? Well, in the, in the accidental good luck department, I should explain that I went to India because I was engaged and I didn't want to get married. So <laughs> I accepted an extremely small fellowship uh, and uh, ended up spending not just a few months, but two years in India. And, and that made a huge difference to me because it was close to the independence movement and to Gandhianism and to, you know, all that transformed 
Um, it was um, a great example of how profound change could be. And of course, India is the other big, big, big diverse democracy besides us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so by the time I came home, uh, I kind of realized, wait a minute, if I am living in a neighborhood where everybody looks like me, how come, you know, what's wrong here? And it sounds like that was a, a really great example for you pretty early on as well around um, what inequality looks like. It, not just understanding it academically, but experiencing it and really feeling it viscerally to know the impact of what that is. Were there any particular aha moments for you either early in your career or while you were in India that made you really want to try to change cultural norms around that? Well, I think that I uh, realized that it probably would not be in those years anyway, I'm talking <laughs> a good idea for me to go to work for an organization in an office because mm -hmm. there really weren't examples of democratic diverse workplaces. And fortunately, because I was a writer and if, you know could make a living in a freelance kind of not luxurious, but <laughs> some somewhat okay way, uh, you know, I was able to do that. And also I could write about uh, what interested me. So I, went to an early women's liberation movement meeting downtown in a church here in Manhattan. Um, women were at that point standing up and talking about the experience of having an abortion, which was then illegal. But even though it was illegal, about one in three American women had experienced it even then. And so just listening made me realize, wait a minute, this is crazy. If one in three of us me too, you know, had had that experience. Why is it dangerous? Why is it illegal? And I think um, a lot of progress starts with just asking questions about the illogical, you know, and that was the beginning for me. And it's still a huge subject for us all today. And it's still very front of mind as much as we've changed over the last 50 years, 100 years. It, some of the same topics are still there and we're still fighting. Um, yeah, still if we, if we look at uh, executive suites and CEOs, and I mean, you know, you all know this uh, better than I, um, or if we look at Congress for that matter, if, if it doesn't look like the country, we're missing talent and, and we're also missing uh, experience, unique experiences that we need in order to make collective decisions. Not to quote yourself to you, but we're looking at the world with one eye open. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, it, and it sounds, um, based on those experiences and where you started to develop that perspective, um, it, challenging stereotypes is definitely something that's been a recurring theme. Um, it's not easy. Challenging a stereotype and, and challenging a widespread norm is not something that's comfortable or easy. Um, and I can imagine in the early days, especially, that there were times when you were helping to build this movement that you experienced moments of fear or moments of doubt. When that happened to you, how did you overcome that? And how did you push those thoughts uh, out of the way? Well, you, when you say fear and doubt, what comes to mind for me is public speaking. I mean, I had become a writer, so I didn't have to talk. Right. <laughs> and yet, because it wasn't possible to publish all that was happening within the movement, 
I, I realized I had, and I was getting invitations to speak on campuses and in church basements and whatever. So in a way, giving into an accommodating fear is a way of making progress because, because I couldn't imagine doing it by myself. I asked my friend Flo Kennedy if she would do it with me, who was a lawyer, a civil rights leader. I hope people look her up, Florence Kennedy in her Aussie hat and so on, right? Um, and so we spoke together and you know, I, it was a great comfort to me because I realized if I totally froze, you know, she could take over. Also, we got way more diverse audiences together than we would have had by ourselves. And also because at that moment in time, there was an idea that in order to be a feminist, you had also to be a lesbian. Uh, you know, I don't know how that came about, but anyway. Right. <laughs> so some guy in the back of the auditorium would get up and say, are you two lesbians? And Flo always had the perfect answer. Are you my alternative? <laughs> and that tended to make the guy sit down. But I, I, I do think that whenever we find ourselves in a group that could look pretty much like the country and it doesn't, then we're missing something. And, and the way that you talk about, um, about flow, the sense of community, I think that comes out of that where you're, you're building something that looks like your community um, and you're, you're doing your best to bring it all together. I think that if that mm -hmm. doesn't help you manage fear, I don't know what will is, is just grounding yourself. Well, in your it, and then, um, I also spoke with Dorothy Pittman Hughes, uh, a friend who also was a fearless speaker. And because, uh, you know, we again were an interracial pair and also she was married and had kids at this moment in time when it was perceived that somehow that wasn't true, you know, if you were a feminist. Once again, you know, it was uh, a way of expressing in personification, you know, what we were trying to work for. That's that's fantastic advice is 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 work with the people around you, give in to the fear um, and trust that you're uh, that you're building it just by showing up. That's incredible. Um, now, in, in the time uh, before uh, Ms. Magazine, which we will come to, um, in the time before that and around when you were starting in the movement, the only publications targeted to women at the time were the ones that don't align to the word feminist as, as we've just defined it. They were about housekeeping or fashion or about finding a husband. Um, uh, and there was a real deficit, deficit in, in women's history around writing and art and it, it, the experience and the cultural dialogue. And Ms. became that voice for women by women that had been left out mostly of the mainstream media. And the perspective began to shift from only men to women having a voice. Um, over its history, its long history, Ms. has remained a trusted source and continues to inspire action around social change because of that voice. Why do you think it's endured all these decades later? Um, well, I, I should say that in the first instance, it shouldn't have been needed, except that the existing women's publications were supported by advertising. And the advertising was all traditional because it was viewed that you know women 
we're working at home and we're concerned about our hair and makeup and that was it and so on. So it, it wasn't that the women editors of other women's magazines weren't smart and great and you know <laughs> they just weren't able to publish uh, according to all of their interests. Mm -hmm. uh, Ms. came along and did that. I must say it meant that we were not supported by advertising that much, to put it mildly. So we eventually became a foundation so that we could be supported in, in that way. But I think now that we have such an online opportunity to talk to each other without sponsorship, so to speak, it's, it's a little better. I mean, it's, it's fragmented, but it's way more diverse. It's certainly chaotic at times, but isn't that just the human experience? Um, it, it's true, if nothing else. Um, and you said something interesting about um, what feminism used to mean. As part of the second wave of feminism in the women's right movement in America, the labels have started to change over time. Feminists in the 70s didn't want to be identified with the suffragettes before them, and feminists today don't necessarily want to be identified with that antiquated idea of what a feminist no, I is. Think, uh, I mean, I think we all admired the suffragists. You, you know, white and black women who had the chutzpah <laughs> to mm. say, hello, you know, we too can vote. No, we did admire them. We, we probably didn't know enough because they weren't very included in our history classes. Exactly. And the, and the cultural definition around what it was probably wasn't the full perspective. It wasn't the full picture of the incredible impact that women like that had early in the... Uh, and the and also, century. even now, I think that in when I look at women's history, I don't see the reality that at least in upstate New York, where uh, the early suffragist movement, you know, was one of the origins, that they were inspired by Native American women, that they could look at their neighbors and see that, wait a minute, they are equal, they have equal power in, in their communal decision-making, how come we don't? And I think that that's helpful because I noticed that our courses, our history courses for the most part, um, don't start when the country started. Mm -hmm. They sort of start when Columbus showed up or something. I mean, they, you know, they don't start when, when people started. So I think we need to continue to work on vertical history. I love that phrase, vertical history, and, and a more inclusive perspective of everyone that contributed. Yeah, like where you're sitting right now, if you think vertically, who was there first? It's kind of intimate to think about it that way. Mm -hmm. And land acknowledgement being uh, such a huge part of what we try to do uh, in all of our uh, employee resource groups. Yes, that's very helpful, right? Absolutely. Um, so based on that, that historical definition, it sounds like empowerment is the is the thread all the way through every every wave every version whatever we want to call it how do you see today's activists uh changing in the future and compared to sort of historically where we've been going in that continued fight for equality what do you what do you think today's mm -hmm. definition of feminism is well i think we each define define it by what we need so i'm not trying to impose a definition but I do think it's expanded uh, so that now it includes sexuality and, you know, 
living in the in the way that makes sense for you as an individual, uh, having children, not having children. Also, the idea that men can actually raise children as much as women. How revolutionary is that? <laughs> you know, uh, that's really just beginning. It's fantastic. Um, now, because of all of this work that we've been talking about so far across America, all across the world, more and more women are afforded the respect and the opportunities that they deserve. Looking back on all of that history, what's been the most powerful moment for you that's been an outcome of this movement, something, uh, a positive change that's really resonated for you? Well, when you say that to me, I think of Shirley Chisholm, what was it, 1970, I think, declaring for the presidency of the United States. All right, this was not going to happen. It didn't happen. She was only on the ballot, I think, in 14 states or something. But she, that moment, took the white male only sign off the White House door in our imaginations. And that's the first step. So now at least there's a woman of color who's the vice president and eventually will be choosing from all talent, we hope. We hope very soon. And we um, thrilled to see the representation and especially with the most recent uh, Supreme Court nomination is such a fantastic step forward for this country. And I'm so enthusiastic um, about that sign, that same sign being taken off doors left, right and center. It's, it's fantastic to see. I know when you think about who's been on the Supreme Court all these years, it makes zero sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> by the people, for the people, of the people. Um, let, let's shift gears a little bit to another topic that we've hinted at, and I'd like to come at very directly. You've very long been a champion for uh, women's reproductive rights, um, and we've come very far, but in some ways it does feel two steps forward, one step back. Like we have regressed a little bit with recent court rulings, uh, especially at uh, state level policies that are undermining some of those rights. Um, what work are you asking people to think about if they want to contribute uh, to make an impact at an individual level on that topic? We, we probably have a variety of, of tasks before us, depending on what our role is and where we live and so on. But I think the, the fundamental truth is that um, if we don't, if we can't make decisions over our own bodies, we're not living in a democracy. But because women happen to have wounds, <laughs> there has been, uh, not, maybe not always, but very frequently, an effort to control women's bodies and to take the decision away from women. Mm -hmm. So I think it helps to understand that it is not a special issue or a distinct issue, it is the soul of democracy. You know, either we have control over our own bodies or we don't. And, and despotic regimes have always started out trying to control birth giving and control women's bodies. Actually, when, when Hitler was elected, <laughs> the very next day, he padlocked all the family planning clinics and declared abortion a crime against the state. So, you know, I, I think it's helpful if we see it not only as something that women need for our health and freedom, but something that is fundamental to democracy. And, and part of that is it's not just women's health, it's, it's 
fundamental to everyone in a democracy. And, and that leads into, um, I think we, we were talking before recording about intersectionality and um, where all of these movements come together as human rights. Um, mm. So much of your work has been around becoming a uniting force across multiple different struggles. You've championed the intersection of feminism with the rights of LGBTQ plus people, with people of color, um, and organizing across boundaries for peace and justice. Um, what have you found to be some of the best ways to stop uh, divisions that prop up that that crop up in uh, in that work and and really encourage solidarity? Um, well, I think it's just um, an understanding that we what we want is what we also have to support if, for other people. You know, so if if we want the right to make decisions over our own physical selves, then you know that's true for other people in everything having to do with reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's just kind of commonsensical. And though, from a maybe from a media point of view, these movements are viewed as somewhat separate. They're really not separate. You know, I mean, you, you, you kind of can't have a feminist group, uh, which is racist, hello, then it's not feminist. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you, you know, similarly, you, you can't have um, a group that, that channels or restricts people according to race. And, you know, I mean, I just think it all goes together. At the end of the day, it's all human rights. Yes. Uh, although human rights has been used without necessarily being as inclusive as it might be. So I do think it's, it's, it's helpful to, to make all the parts visible. So people feel cared for and included and, and empowered. I couldn't agree more. Um, Let's let's talk about what we can do. Um, we're here at a, at a corporate event, uh, at a Salesforce event. Um, let's talk about the business world and what we can do as a company to make a positive impact, um, considering the very deeply rooted gender norms that we've been talking about in our culture. It, it's so critically important for women to value themselves and to reach out to their community um, and to their peers for support when they need to in order to be able to do that. How do you think we can best advocate for greater respect and recognition for women in leadership positions uh, in the business world today? Mm. You know, I think you're way more expert in this than, than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but in a general way, when we have a group sitting at a decision-making table and it doesn't look like the community or look like our customers or look like our labor force or something, then I think we know what we need to work on. Also, the format of our meetings, uh, it's really magical, I find, to sit in a circle instead of in a kind of pyramid. It means when I'm traveling and we're meeting in uh, college classrooms and we just take the chairs and put them in a circle instead of like, suddenly it's different. <laughs> uh, when we uh, kind of take turns speaking. I mean, uh, once again, Native Americans um, who kind of invented democracy in this country uh, had talking sticks, so mm-hmm. or a talking stick, so that they passed around the circle 
And when you had it, you could talk and everybody had to listen. <laughs> and then, but you had to pass it to the next person. I, I, you know, not that we need to do that physically, but I think it's a good image to keep in our minds. I, I love the visual of the circle style, sort of Knights of the Round Table, if you will, that we have different roles, but we're, we're all here because we're trying to achieve the same thing. Let's put ourselves on equal footing and, and listen. Mm -hmm. that, that sounds. We, we may need to have what, what you might call remedial meetings. That is a, a racial or ethnic group that isn't well represented may need to meet on its own and plot how to, you know, and women may, you know, whatever it is, men, men who are not, um, allowed to have paternity leave or to behave as if their parents too might, you know, so we have common cause uh, and, and individual reasons to meet together. But the goal is a circle, a representative circle. I couldn't agree more. Um, let's let's pivot our, our last few moments here to uh, the, the name of this series, Be Well. Um, we like to talk about well-being here. And um, you've said before, we, we look to women and their status as the best leading indicator of the world's stability. Um, to quote, the well-being of women determines the well-being of society. It, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, it, it's actually just statistically true that the, not, not, not just the, the well-being of women in, say, the labor force, but the democratic nature of families is a way better indicator of the likelihood of war or peace nationally than even the distribution of wealth. Because we need to, it's helpful for us to grow up um, in an atmosphere of being able to speak, being able to listen and to build this democracy from, from the bottom up. So I, I think sometimes we feel that change is a tree, uh, and then we should remember that doesn't trees don't grow from the top down; <laughs> they grow from the bottom up. Right. right. Uh, and this is helpful because otherwise, I fear sometimes we think we have to start up there. You know, we have to start with who's in Congress or who's the president of our company or who's a you know, and of course that's a great concern, but it makes it may make us neglect the the roots of the tree. The people at the end of the day, the the, the people who are living the, the cultural experience every day. Also, it, I would say one other thing which I think doesn't get said enough, which is that laughter is a proof of freedom. You know, it's actually uh literally the case that when you're in hierarchical situations you're less likely to be to be able to laugh it makes me worry about religion for instance because <laughs> you know right but um in in native american uh tradition there is a spirit of laughter a person uh i think without gender and the idea is that if you can't laugh, you can't pray because laughter breaks into the unknown. It's sort of, it's spontaneous, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I, I find that helpful because I, I don't think laughter is valued enough. That's, I can't remember the last time that, um, that I had to think of the last time that I laughed and it's because it's such a spontaneous and natural reaction. Right. Um, that sounds like a wonderful indicator of, um, of how to, how to find that well-being. Um, what makes you laugh? Um, contradictions, uh, uh, words, wordplay, um, you know, I mean, I, th I think laughter is kind of a recognition moment, a moment of recognition. So it's when it's the aha, <laughs> you know, the moment when you suddenly what you're done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> realize something and it makes you laugh. And it's just so precious and so crucial that we have those moments, that we're free to have those moments. So it is a pretty good measure of freedom, I think. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, we are just about at time. So I'll end by saying um, thank you so much, Gloria, for, for being with us today and for your life's work. Um, we are so incredibly grateful for the bravery that's gone into helping us all move forward um, and for the inspiration for my generation and generations beyond. Um, and thank you more than anything for sharing your your joy and your inspiration with us and, and the reminder that, especially after two years of being isolated, a good laugh every once in a while is probably yes. the best. No, the best and, I, and I thank you because, uh, I mean, I plan to live to 100, mind you, but <laughs> that still means that you will be here way beyond me. And that gives me such pleasure, you know, to just imagine what the future will be because of you. Thank you so much. And the, the joy that it's brought to our hearts today to get to speak with you. It has been an absolute honor to hear firsthand about your quality efforts and the advancements that you've helped to make for women and for everybody on this planet. Um, so a big thank you to you, Gloria, and to everyone who joined our call today. Um, and remember, be happy, be healthy, be well, and don't forget to laugh. Thanks so much for joining everyone. Thank you, thank Bye. you, thank you, thank you. That was Gloria Steinem, writer, lecturer, political activist, and feminist organizer, speaking with Lauren Parker, Regional Vice President of Service Cloud and Executive Vice President of the Salesforce Women's Network. Be sure to check out more episodes of Be Well Together by going to salesforce.com slash plus, that's Salesforce plus, salesforce.com slash P-L-U-S. Thanks for listening today. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. 